0: I have the distinct pleasure to continue in our uh, in our legacy series today. If you're taking notes, I'd like you to please write down thousand-year perspective. Thousand year perspective. Some of you may remember this. Anybody notice that like because of how like crazy and traumatic the last few years have been, anything that happened before 2020 feels like it was like a generation ago. <laughs> but in uh in April of 2019, I remember, I remember turning my, uh, well, like I guess I wasn't turning my TV on. I was watching it on my phone. Um, but I remember watching in horror as the, uh, the famed Notre Dame Cathedral basically burned to the ground. And even as a non-Catholic, I was absolutely mortified to see something that, for so long, had been one of the most important symbols of Western Christianity. More than that, more than that, Notre Dame was built in the 11th century. It represented almost a thousand-year legacy—a thousand years. Now, thank God, Notre Dame is being rebuilt. I think it's it's reopening. I, I looked it up. is sometime in December of uh, of 2024. But I want you to understand this perspective for a moment. Notre Dame began being built in the 11th century, and it wasn't completed until the 13th century. It took about 200 years to build. 200 years. How many of you have ever gotten annoyed when you drive by the same construction zone every day? I don't know. I don't know if anybody remember. Well, I'm sure that everybody in the room remembers this one degree or another. Remember, remember when they were rebuilding that bridge down there at the bottom of the hill? I remember driving by that bridge. You know, having to kind of either go around or you get caught in that. You know, in the in the in the traffic light situation. And because I work here, I had to drive that every single day, right? So you're trying to find all the back roads that you can possibly find to avoid the construction. But I remember, I remember driving by that and just being so impatient for that bridge to be finished. Now imagine a building that took 200 years to build. Here's a, here's a different kind of perspective. The guy who started it didn't finish it. In fact, the grandchild of the guy who started it didn't finish it. They weren't building something for themselves. They weren't even building something for their children. They were building something for God. And because they were building it for him and not for people, it didn't matter that it took 200 years to complete because the work, listen, listen, the work was worth doing. You know, like I was talking about last week, we talked about the story of Ozymandias, the, you know, the, the, the king known as Ramses Ramses II. Every person in this room wants to be remembered. Now, we might have less lofty goals than the builders of, you know, Notre Dame or, you know, or Ramses II himself, but nevertheless, we have an idea in our mind of what legacy is. Today, I want to talk about building something together because I feel like we've, you know, last week particularly, I kind of hit more on a personal spiritual legacy, but I want to talk about a legacy of building together. I'm going to do something this morning as we start that I don't necessarily normally do. I'm going to give you a perspective, some some eschatological perspective today. Now, here's why I don't usually talk about eschatology. First of all, for those of you who don't know what the term eschatology means, It effectively means the study of the last things or the end times. For those of you who do know what eschatology means, you've probably been coming and be like, finally, he's saying something about it. (laughs) Listen, I believe that all doctrines are noteworthy. There are some things that are more important than others, but everything that is in the Bible is worth talking about, right? Right? One of the reasons why I personally, you know, I, I have an eschatology, like I, I have a particular perspective on the end times. There's a reason why I don't talk about it a lot, and the reason is is because eschatology has the propensity to be one of the more divisive doctrines in the church. And it's like it's like if 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 you don't necessarily share the common theme or idea about you know what's actually going to happen in the end times. I mean, I've literally had I've heard people call other Christians who think differently about them concerning the end times heretics, because we just think a little bit differently about how God's going to do things in the end. But part of the reason why eschatology is really important when we talk about legacy is because of this. Christians have a real propensity to get so caught up thinking about when Jesus is coming back And oftentimes we think to ourselves, well, it's imminent, right? Like it's coming real, real soon. And so in the American evangelical church, it's hard for us to even imagine creating something like Notre Dame, not because 200 years is a long time, but because we don't think in terms of hundreds of years. We think in terms of decades. Because you never know when Jesus might come back. So we don't want to plan too far into the future eschatology sometimes can can give us the perspective that because jesus might be coming back anytime, that we don't have to plan for the future there's an entire generation of believers that took on incredible amounts of debt because they thought to themselves no big deal jesus is coming back in 10 years and then jesus didn't come back in 10 years and their credit card kept credit card bill kept coming in Sometimes a fixation on the return of Christ can lead us to sacrifice a future legacy for the hope that it'll all just be over soon. In short, here's what I want you to, to grab hold of this morning. I think it's time for the church to regain a thousand year perspective. It's time for the church to regain a thousand year perspective. See, whether you're a historic premillennialist, You're a dispensationalist, you're an amillennialist, or you're any other kind of ist. Every single person who believed that they knew when Christ was coming back has been categorically debunked. If you think you know when Jesus is coming back, friend, I can guarantee you I know exactly when he's not coming back. When you think he is. (laughs) It's funny. There are all kinds of people... Sorry if I'm going so hard at this this morning. There are all kinds of people who have built massive platforms and, and, and gained tons of money from talking about the end times. You know, there was, a, there was a, a, popular, a couple of popular books written uh, in the 1980s. One of them was called The 87 Reasons Why God is Coming, Jesus is Coming Back in 1987. <laughs> Didn't happen. So the author doubled down on it and wrote another one the 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. After 88 he stopped. <laughs> Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't long for the return of Christ. We absolutely should. It's our glorious hope, right? Like listen, this isn't a TED talk. Like we we're not adding Jesus to our life so that we can like, you know, live our best life now. We are literally waiting for the return of Christ and the restoration of all things. It simply means that we have to stop planning as though he's coming back so soon that we don't have to prepare for a future. New College in uh, in Oxford. There's a story that came out of uh, out of that particular school. the the the, 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 uh, the college was built in the 13th century, and actually, it was it was it was pretty common practice of that in that era, that whenever they would build a university, they would also plant an oak grove. And the point of that was not to beautify the landscape. The point of it was that oak was really expensive, and things need to be replaced. And so about 50 years ago, this particular university realized that the oak beams within the oldest section of the, uh, of the college, which was their, was their dining hall, the, the, the gigantic oak beam at the top had bugs in it, like it was getting eaten from the inside out and the school the school didn't realize that the original oak grove that was on the property had actually been designed for the very purpose that by the time the beam wore out the woods that they planted were the replacement they had such a perspective on how long this college might go forward that they thought to themselves we need to plan right now to ensure that the work that happens here never stops. Can I give you a perspective about times real quick? We should be living as though Jesus is coming back tomorrow and planning as though he's not coming back for a thousand years. I'm going to say that one more time so you grab a hold of it. As believers, we ought to be living as though Jesus is coming back tomorrow. But we ought to be planning as though he's not coming back for a thousand years. Now sometimes, as a, because we're Americans, and America is still a real, I mean, so funny. Um, my daughter asked me the other day, she said, dad, how old is America? And of course, I'm trying to do the math in my head. You know, I'm like, gosh, man, a couple hundred years, you know, and she said, wow, that's old. I mean, to her it's old, but the reality is, is that America is a very, very new country comparatively. Like when we, we compare ourselves to, you know, to, to other developed nations, what we see is we see, we see nations that have existed in one form or another for thousands of years. We've been here 200, effectively, give or take. This is church, not class, okay? This isn't math. Went to public school, calm down. Sometimes it's hard, to, it's hard for us to have this thousand-year perspective because our country doesn't even have a thousand-year perspective. We don't have a thousand years of recorded history that we can look back on and be like, oh yeah, so-and-so did this in the 10th century. Now we've got the founding fathers. Why don't you go with me this morning to Revelation chapter 3? It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. And actually. This is also one of my favorite stories in history. This is Jesus, of course, he's, he's giving John um, prophetic revelation, and, and he's, he's particularly speaking to seven different churches. And in, in Revelation chapter three, he writes to the, 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 the church in Philadelphia, and this is what he says. He says, "Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David." who opens and no one will close and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I've placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have had but little power and yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I've loved you. Because you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those that live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear Listen to what the Spirit says to the church. As a church, why should we plan for the future? Did you know there are approximately 300,000 churches in America? 300,000. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? You know, sometimes as a pastor, I'll be honest and say that you know, when I when I hear people give like these these big picture statements about the church and they say things like all oh, the churches, you know, we're, we're the church at large. We're all going to experience breakthrough like really all 300,000 of us like <laughs> they were coming into a season of breakthrough. But, you know, it's interesting in, in Revelation two and three. OK, I want you to get this perspective real quick. All seven of these churches were actually like geographically fairly close to one another. They were all overseen by the same bishop, which was John. They all had the same doctrine for the most part. And yet to each one of them was given a different word. What I mean is this. So for example, imagine that you were, uh, uh, let's see, what did I write down? The church of Smyrna? No, Thyatira. whew imagine you're this is the church of thyatira on a sunday morning right and and, and, oh man we got a letter from jesus today awesome you know so the lead elder gets up and he he reads the letter that john you know received from jesus and like so there's this point there's this point in which this letter to, to 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 thyatira the lord says but this i have against you you tolerate the woman jezebel And then he goes on to talk about her teaching and how it's encouraging people towards sexual immorality. And then in this same letter, he says, and so, because I gave her time to repent and she wouldn't, I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed. I mean, okay, if we're all sitting here, right, listening to this letter, everybody knows who they're talking about. Like, I mean, Jezebel's like right here and you're just like... jesse b's in trouble okay like (laughs) (laughs) why is this important to understand it's because I, i need you to understand friend jesus is actually watching us he's actually watching us it matters what we believe it matters what we preach how we build matters to Christ. Again, I want you to understand this. There are 300,000 churches in America, and we are there are so many theological divisions between us. This is a group of seven churches that all generally believe the same thing, and to almost each one of them, there was a moment where Jesus said, "Repent," or, "I'm going to take your lamp stand." Because what we do as a people and how, we, and how we build together actually matters to Jesus. Why? Because it's his reputation and not ours. You know, I preached preach on this a number, I think it was a couple of years ago. But I was talking about the pride in the prophetic movement. And what concerns me about prophets who, who seem to, you know, to have, to have some, 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 some gifting, but at the same time, they have no humility, is that for whatever reason, they think that by, by saying sorry when they get something wrong, that that somehow demeans their reputation personally. Actually, what it does is it demeans the reputation of Jesus. Because the book of Revelation says that the test, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Meaning, if we're saying that we're speaking in Christ's name and we get it wrong, who gets blamed? Listen, I believe that the next move of God is going to be a marrying of spirit and word. A return not just to a desire for, you know, for, for all of the Holy Ghost fire that we love as charismatics, but also a deep love for Scripture and a fear of the Lord that has been starkly lacking in the church. Amen. Pentecostalism's problem has been in that as wonderful as experiencing the power of God and community is, we have careened into all sorts of false teaching because, well, there's still miracles happening. Okay, that's good. But ultimately, when I hear preachers this is not a joke. I I heard a woman came to me a, a couple of weeks ago and was talking to me about a a, a sermon that she heard in a, in a church in kind of our region. She said it was the last sermon that I could stand there because what the preacher effectively said was if you're sick you can't be Christian. Like that's the kind of level of like faith healing, you know, like preaching that we're talking about. Friend, I got to tell you Paul got sick. Was he not a Christian? Did he not have enough faith? You know, I just, the point is this. The church has to fall back in love with the scripture again. The fact that, can I be, just can I be really transparent with you today? Good, because I'm going to anyway. Um, (laughs) Listen, there are a lot of faithful churches, but there are a lot of unfaithful churches too. We're seeing unprecedented Church and denominational splits in the nations today over areas of doctrine that were so widely believed in the church for 2,000 years that it's ludicrous to feel like we even have to talk about them today. The fact that I have to get up and say that there are only two genders is crazy. That's nuts. And it's because we think that our education makes us smarter than our fathers. Can I tell you something? You're not smarter than Augustine. Have you ever read Charles Spurgeon? Have you ever read like any of these incredible preachers from like, from like the 18th century or gone back all the way into the era of the church fathers? Just because you took algebra doesn't make you smarter than they are. It doesn't make you know the Bible more than they knew the Bible. We're having all kinds of arguments over things that were so settled. And it's because we've decided that we are smarter than the Bible. But here's the reality. Churches that abuse the word of God fail. They fail. And there's a reason why. Here's the big idea. It's because Jesus builds his church. Jesus does. Not my gift, not my ability, not our worship team. Jesus builds his church. Boy, am I going hard this morning? <laughs> Man, I firmly believe that so long as his church stays faithful to his word, his witness and his testimony, he will continue to grow it. And I don't know about you, but I plan to be faithful. Faithful. Man, I'm am standing here right now. This, I mean, I've told God this so many times, but I will absolutely tell you that I will never change my preaching based upon a DM that I get on Instagram. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to change the word that comes from here because I'm just a little uncomfortable how how it might make you feel. My goal. <laughs> so I'm kind of feeling it today. My goal is not to itch your ears, man. Man, if you want the word of God, this is the place to be. But if you don't want it to ever make you uncomfortable, man, there's some other churches out there that might want to get you a little more comfortable. Think on the words of Christ to the church of Ephesus. He even gave them like kind of a thumbs up in the beginning of this word. And then he said, but this one thing I have against you, you left your first love of me. And then he says this, I will come to you and remove your lampstand unless you what? Unless you repent. Come back. Do the things you did at first. I just have two more thoughts for you and then we're closing up this morning. A couple of thoughts about partnering together and building together. Number one is this. Become deeply rooted. Become deeply rooted. man. America has, America has created wonderful systems. Like, I, I firmly believe, and I know this is an unpopular like thing to say for whatever reason, but I firmly believe that America is one of the greatest nations the world has ever seen. Absolutely, hands down. Can I tell you one poor contribution that America has given the world? Is that because... We have created a culture in which you can have anything you want almost at any time that has bled into how people view the church. And so what happens is, is that a new, fresh, trendy preacher comes into town and you go to a different church. Or, you you know, you hear that, you know, the, the church on the hill has a hot worship team. So we start attending the hot worship team church. Or any number of reasons, and here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it's ever wrong to leave a church to go to another church. I'm saying that many of us have learned mercantilism. And we've applied it in the church context. To where we say to ourselves, it doesn't really matter if I go to this church, or if I go to that church, or if I go to a smattering of 25 different churches. Because in the end, we're all the same church, right? I'm, friend, i got to tell you, that is wrong. Biblically speaking, it's wrong. Who are you submitted to? Who are you, who are you in fellowship with? You know how easy it is to be a tumbleweed Christian? Let me put it to you this way. What's interesting about tumbleweeds, I always assumed as a kid that tumbleweeds were dead. You realize that most tumbleweeds are not dead, right? It's just that what they do is they roll... And they have these really tiny roots that go down just far enough to catch a little bit of water. And then they roll again when the wind comes by. What tumbleweeds never really do is bear fruit. You cannot bear fruit without being rooted. Psalm 92, 12 and 13. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Can I just say, like one of the things I love about the Book of Psalms is like this church is so aptly named for so many things in the Book of Psalms. Like I was glad when they said, "Go up the house of the Lord." and you're like, "Yeah, <laughs> anyway, All right. they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God, planted, planted, rooted all throughout Scripture. What we're, what we're, what we're hearing is these, these, des- these depictions and descriptions of what it means to flourish, and if you want to flourish, you've got to stay where God called you now being very clear listen house of the lord isn't for everyone you know my dad my dad tells a story um, about it was probably about 10 years ago there was a particularly large family that came in one one sunday morning and really enjoyed uh really enjoyed the worship enjoyed the message God comes up to my dad after service and says to him, you know, pastor, he he tells him how much money he makes a year and how much he he would give in tithes. Talks about how how talented in music his kids were and how they love worship and they want to be on the worship team. And then he says to him, you know, pastor, um, if you'll just be like if you'll just with your teaching, can you be a little bit more reformed and then and and then i 'll commit to being in this church listen if you 're looking for reformed theology this isn 't it, and we 're not going to change it so that you stay you know I, I described it this way um, a, a couple of years ago we were talking about um, church attendance and why do we why do we come to church? you know there was a debate and it 's kind of it 's still a debate kind of between who had the best chicken sandwich, you know, is, is it Popeye's or is it Chick-fil-A, you know? And well, I, I, I gotta be honest with you. Y'all can call me a traitor if you want. Even though, even though Chick-fil-A is the Lord's chicken, I got to tell you, man, Popeyes has got a recipe, y'all. Popeye's got a recipe, but listen, there are a million chicken joints in the world and every single one of them claims to have the right sauce. Man, House of the Lord, House of the Lord, it's kind of like we're we're all preaching Jesus. We just have a different flavor. And if that's your flavor, man, stick it out. But if it's not your flavor, find another chicken joint. It's okay. Let me put it to you this way. If God called you here, plan to be here till you die or until he moves you elsewhere. Listen, we're, we're an open-handed church. I'm not, I'm not telling you, you know, Urgh! I'm saying be so deeply rooted in community that it hurts to leave. Yes. You know, I've had people ask me a lot, you know, when are you going to plant a church, bro? Or, you know, do you see yourself here in X amount of years? <laughs> I got to tell you the truth. It would take... A miracle for me to leave this place. I would, honest to God, I would, <laughs> the Lord would have to speak to me so clearly to go somewhere else that I would understand that it is a sin for me to stay. That's, that's being deeply rooted. And, I, okay. and it's because I don't see the church as something that enhances my life. I see it as a true family. I don't view ministry as a ladder to success because success in the kingdom is spelled F-A-I-T-H-F-U-L, faithful. That's success in the kingdom. The more rooted you are in the house that you're called to, the stronger you'll be. Number two sacrifice for what christ sacrificed for i want you to hear this this is hebrews 11 verses 8 to 16 by faith abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going by faith he went to live in the land of the promise as in a foreign land living in tents with isaac and jacob heirs with him of the same promise For he was, listen, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore." These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak this, make it speak thus, excuse me, speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The church in the here and now is the first fruits of the promise of a heavenly kingdom. Listen, we have created such an individual gospel that sometimes we forget that God didn't die for your sins. He died for our sins. Let me say that again. Jesus didn't die for your sins he died for our sins and when you were born again you were born again into a family and that family is the church does that make sense see sometimes what we do is we have to convince people sometimes because of the way that we preach the gospel that church is a good thing for you listen you don't go to church you are the church and coming together in community is a non-negotiable. In fact, oh man, I'm preaching this hard today. Listen, part of, can I, can I tell you the excommunication process in the, in the New Testament? You can't come to church anymore. That was the excommunication process. See, when Paul excommunicates the man out of the Corinthian church, what does he say? Cast him out don't let him come back can i propose to you lightly lightly that a lot of christians have exiled themselves by refusing to be part of god's family well pastor you don't sing the songs that i like well we weren't singing to you so i don't know Listen, the people all around you, the people all around you are the promise that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were looking forward to. A people of God's presence, a place for his spirit, a holy dwelling not made by hands for his own habitation. We are the promise that Jesus sacrificed himself to birth. See, One thing I love about Pentecost Sunday is that this was the moment that the church became more than just 120. It's the moment where it ceased to be this, this private kind of like scared group of guys that were, they were excited about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That's great. But they didn't know what to do with themselves. And so Jesus tells them, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. But then he says, but wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that was the moment when the Holy Spirit fell that the church that we know became the church that we know. Man. And I sometimes struggle to get out of bed on my weekends off. Anybody feel that way? And this isn't, I hope this is, I'm not trying to shame anybody to come to church more. I'm just saying, I think sometimes we, we so lightly esteem what Jesus gave his life to create. Like, I wonder if we've simply become numb to the, re, the reality that Christ didn't die to no purpose. He died. Can I get the band to come up? He died not just to give you and I freedom. He died not just to give us a clean slate. He died to call us into a family, and that family is the church, and its expression in practice is the local church. Listen, simply put, you know, there's this, there's this, this, this question. You know, preachers when when they preach, they there's two general kind of takeaways that we always want you to have. The first one is, what do we want you to know? The second is what do we want you to do? Simply put, I'm encouraging you to help us build. Help us build what God is doing here. I don't mean facilities necessarily or physical buildings necessarily. I mean people. Can I tell you, this is an insanely confusing time in history. Anybody ever feel that way? Like you, you, you read, you know, you turn on the news or you watch something on your phone or you, you read an article and, and it feels like you don't recognize the world around you. We live in a time, we live in a time where it feels as though there is a demonic haze that has fallen across the world. Where it feels like every time you turn around, there's a new, really honest with you, there's a new doctrine of demons that's being touted as the gospel. Every time I turn around, it feels like there's a, there, there's a new intersectional piece that if we don't have as a church, we've missed it. Friend, I gotta tell you, I don't need your cultural politics. I don't need your cultural relevance in order to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, in uncertain times, a confused nation needs a certain church. Not saying that we know everything, but there is a difference. There's a difference between saying, I know everything and I know the truth. Does that make sense? Listen, I don't know everything. I don't even know everything about the Bible yet because I don't think that's possible in a human lifetime I certainly don't know everything about God because he's so much higher than me and greater than me that is, that is a physical and literal impossibility for me to know everything about God but I do know the truth and the truth, can I tell you this the truth will set you free but first, listen, first it's going to burn your house down You know what I'm talking about? Man, when I first really heard the truth, it shook a lot of things up in me and had to shake a lot of things out of me. First, Before it sets you free, it's got to shake up your notions of truth. I may not know everything, but friend, I can tell you, I know the truth. And that's that Jesus died for your sins. That he he was in the grave for three days. That he arose on the third day. That he ascended and that he poured out the Holy Spirit on all mankind. And the same power that raised him from the dead is available to you today. And more than that. He birthed a people, a movement, a body, his own bride out of his blood. And I've got to tell you, friend, she is worth sacrificing for. If if it was worth it to Jesus to sacrifice himself, it ought to be worth it to me. I want to go back to this real quick. Revelation chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I'll tell you a quick story and then we're closing up I've told this story before but I I promise you guys I am not obsessed with being martyred okay not obsessed with being martyred but when I heard this story it, it, it shook me to the core Philadelphia if we look historically was really it was the smallest it was the smallest church out of all seven churches it was literally the least powerful and yet if we look at the grand scope of all seven letters it was the most faithful and so jesus says to him behold today i'm setting i'm setting before you a door that nobody else can open and nobody else can shut every single one of the churches that are mentioned in revelation chapter 2 and 3 ended within about the first 3 or 400 years of this letter being uh, being written philadelphia that church continued on in its ancient form for more than 1200 years that church was still operating in the 13th century here's how it all went down when the Ottoman Turks took the city of Philadelphia but one of the last buildings to be taken was the church because it was set high on a hill the entire congregation had gone to the house of the Lord for refuge and so when the army surrounded them the leaders said to them come out convert or die the elders of the church came out their families were behind them in the doorway and they echoed the words of Polycarp the martyr and they said the Lord has been so good to us for all these generations how could we ever betray him and so they walked back into the church they closed the doors, and the Turks burned the church down around them. Now you might say to yourself, Wow, this is a grim way to end a message on Pentecost Sunday, Pastor Joel. But can I tell you the truth? I'm not called to be flashy, I'm called to be faithful, and that was a faithful ending. You know, in Hebrews, in Hebrews, where it describes Abel, we talked about this last week, but it says. Because his offering was correct, I'm paraphrasing. Even though he's dead, his blood still speaks. And I tell you, the testimony of this church still speaks to me. Because it's a it's it's a group of people who knew, who knew that they had something special and it was worth giving to. Listen, I'm not, <laughs> I promise you, we're not doing another offering here, okay? I'm not passing the plates out. What I'm saying is. We have, a, we have a propensity in the American church to say, I'll just go wherever I'm going to go. And friend, I'm tired of seeing so many Christians tumble down the road. Stop being a tumbleweed Christian and plant somewhere. If it's not here, that's okay, but plant somewhere. Can I tell you why? It's because I have the heart of a pastor for you and I want you to grow. And if you're not planted, you're not going to grow that's just how it is you know we wouldn't go down to you know to ace hardware or to the 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 plant guy is that what he's called like we wouldn't go down and and pick up a tree and like keep it in its tiny little pot and just leave it there on the road but that's what a lot of christians are like we're not rooted we're not planted anywhere and we're wondering why we're not growing when we're not flourishing it's because we never got planted we had all the right things we had all the right leaves we had all the right branches but nobody put us in the ground Friend, if you want to grow, you got to plant. That's just the nature of life. If you want your finances to grow, you got to invest. That's the nature of life. I want to encourage you plant somewhere. And while you're there, plant something. Come on, let's pray. I just got a couple of questions for you the first one is this do you know jesus today friend i'm telling you this morning i don't have to convince you of your sin like i'm confident that the holy spirit has already done that today i'm not trying to convince you in some kind of you know like sales pitch kind of way to come to jesus man you already know that you need something different I'm just gonna give you an opportunity this morning to respond and not just to not just have your sins forgiven not just to not just to enter into new life although that's a huge 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 part of it but also to be invited into a family listen you don't have to be an orphan anymore you don't have to be alone anymore this the people in this room are not spectators they're family members if you're here today and you've not given your life to Jesus, or maybe maybe like the prodigal son, you found yourself in a far off country. You're living in the same town, but man, you got to a different side of town. And today, you want to say yes to Jesus. If that's you, like if, you, if you've never given your life to Christ, or maybe there was a point in time where you did, but you realize that you have still found yourself far from him. If you're here in the room this morning, and today you want to give your life back to him, I want to pray with you. Would you just raise your hand for me? I'd love to pray for you.